This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. This is Morton Anderson, and you're listening to the iTest for Two. Well, welcome to this week's hurricane edition of the I Test for Two podcast. I'm Clark Judge. I'm Ira Kaufman. And we are, of course, Hall of Fame voters who are joined today, as we are always, by our Hall of Fame producer, Ian Glendon. Now, guys, I say this often and I'll say it again this week. You're both in the Tampa area. Ira, you live in Tampa. Ian, you live in St. Petersburg. So the question is, what's the bigger concern right now? Is it Hurricane Ian or is it where the... Bucks Chiefs game is going to be played. Well, I'm uh, I'm about ten or fifteen miles east of uh, the Gulf, and I'm not sure where Ian is because Clark, they're talking about this as a water event rather than a big wind event. Um, and uh, Ian, are you closer to the Gulf than I am? I am. I'm uh, I'm kind of right on the fringe of a lot of the evacuation areas because i'm right over the bridge from like madeira beach area so i'm, I'm far enough away but close enough that you know we we're, we're keeping an eye on it you never want to take something named ian lately yeah no, i was gonna ask you are you flattered or offended by the name uh, well i'm i'm a hurricane after you well I'm, I'm i'm at least pleased that people know how to pronounce my name now at least because i i've heard many variations of it uh We'll see. We'll see. Ho- hopefully this isn't one of those ones that people talk about for years. And I, then I might have to th- consider leaving the state of Florida. Uh, uh, Clark, there's a Clark, there's a dust devil Ira that's coming into Phoenix uh, in a couple of months. So uh, be ready for that. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever be ready for that. Hey, one other question for you guys. I want to go back to last weekend. You know, that two point conversion uh, that really kind of cost the, the Bucks that game. Um, what happened there? Ira, were you at the game? Uh, I, I was at the game. Um, was that a Brady freeze or what, what, what happened? Was yeah, it a brain yeah, freeze, Todd a Brady Bowles, freeze? What happened? Todd Bowles came in the interview room. I didn't waste any time. I asked the first question, what happened on the two point conversion? Well, we didn't execute. Clark, <laughs> I'm, Clark we got to ban that word from, from NFL coaches. Well, execute. Yeah. Except you remember when John McKay was asked about his winless bucks and they said, <laughs> What'd you think of your team's execution? And he said, I'm all for it. All for it. Yeah, that's a classic. <laughs> that's a uh, classic. Clark, nobody, nobody wants to point fingers at anybody. What? The center, uh, you know, who's a young center, did he not snap the ball? Was there a problem with the play clock? Well, yeah, but they Clark, do. With Tom, they, with Tom Brady, that can't happen. Yeah, they, but they, they do want to point fingers, Ira. They're pointing fingers at the Jumbotron. I mean, Ira, what on earth could Aaron Rodgers have seen on the Jumbotron that gave away what was going to happen? Uh, I think it was more Clark that uh, he saw some things um, that could help their defense uh, get in a certain scheme and a position, but not on that particular play. That's all on the Bucks, Clark. That one's all on the Bucks. Yeah, yeah. And no, go ahead. Yeah, Clark. Last thing: when you move back from the two to the seven, but some people think, well, maybe he did it deliberately, gives you more room to operate. No, because it takes the run out of the play, and so I don't think anybody would do it on purpose, Ian. Yeah, plus that run looked like it was going to go. I mean, yeah. It looked like that was wide open. Yeah. I, I think it was just a perfect storm, so to speak, of circumstances for that whole play to just completely oh. fail. 
perfect storm, says Hurricane Ian. And uh, Clark, quite frankly, and I told this to Bowles after the game. I, I saw him, uh, you know, just in private. And I said, you, you didn't play well enough to win this game. And you know what? He agreed with me. He agreed with me. Who's coaching that team? Todd Bowles, Tom Brady, or Eric Hoffman? Uh, oh, Bruce Arians. Uh, <laughs> you know, by by the way, Clark, um, some Buck fans, after Arians uh, announced uh, that he was changing jobs, uh, ah, who needs him? He was a figurehead. He sat in a golf cart. Clark, this offense hasn't been the same yeah, that's since right. Bruce Arians stepped down. Especially on third downs. Yes. Okay, we can cut it there. I, I, I think the play the play calling has been a bigger issue. You asked who's coaching the team, and I was going to say it changes series to series, I feel like. You know, once, like, for instance, you start the game out throwing 24 yards, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, oh, my God, they've been listening to me say throw to set up to run as opposed to, you, you don't, why are you running a 2006 offense? You know what I mean? So, like, uh, they do that, and then what do they do? Three straight runs, and I'm like, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like, uh, yes, the injuries have, have obviously impacted them, but I feel like the, the inconsistent play calling has made them so predictable. They use no motion. They don't play action. It's just, you go beat your guy. And it's like, <laughs> again, this isn't 2006. Yeah. We said, go down through sewers and cut over to the Chevy. Yeah. That, that, that was the play. <laughs> go, go deep. You're right. Go deep. <laughs> Well, I said this was the hurricane edition of the I Test for Two, but as you know, we're a Hall of Fame and history-based podcast, so in light of that, we'd like to recognize one of the greatest records in NFL history. And it was set 71 years ago, Ira, 71 years ago Wednesday, because it was on September 28, 1951, that Rams quarterback, Norm Van Brocklin, the Dutchman, threw for 554 yards in that season's opening game. It was a 54-14 beatdown of the New York Yankees, not the New York Giants. The New York Yankees sounds like they could have used Aaron Judge that day. And it broke Johnny Lujak's single-game mark of 468 yards. Now, that was 71 years ago, Ira. And since then, as you know, nobody. Not Peyton Manning, not John Elway, Dan Marino, Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes. Nobody has broken it. So how remarkable is Norman Van Brocklin's record? Well, we have someone with us who knows. And that's former NFL GM Upton Bell, son of Hall of Fame Commissioner Burt Bell, back with us. And Upton, always, always a pleasure to talk to you. So my first question is... How remarkable was it? How remarkable is the Dutchman's record? And where, where were you when you first heard about it? Well, I was actually at, at home. My, my father had a setup where he could hear every game around the country and a lot of them on the Dumont network. And in those days, you could, you could do that if you were the commissioner of the NFL. And, and he would sit there with a, with a yellow pad and be able to take down all the notes and everything else going on in all the different games around the country. That game, by the way, well, first of all, let me say, un unless the NFL finds a way to manipulate it, I don't think that record will ever be broken. And when it happened, and when my father first got the news of it, and there were excerpts, I think, that he picked up 
on his radio kind of short wave, uh, it, it reverberated all around the NFL. Now, remember, in those days, there were only 12 games. Uh, and in the case of the Rams, think about it, two Hall of Fame quarterbacks. Actually, Bob Waterfield would have been due to start that game. But he got injured, so Norm Van Brocklin, his backup, who, by the way, both of them went to the Pro Football Hall of Fame and at no other time, I think, except for Joe Montana and Steve Young, did you have back-to-back quarterbacks that went to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Just a little background. I saw all of them play, and I saw Van Brocklin play, and I saw Waterfield play. And many people thought Van Brocklin was better than Waterfield. But Waterfield was the starting quarterback. And, of course, the big thing of Waterfield was also he was a kicker. So, you know, when you had a quarterback and a kicker in a time when you only had uh, like 30-some players on each roster and only playing 12 games, it was very important for the quarterback or somebody to be able to kick too. So going into that game, basically Van Brocklin never would have set the record, never would have played if Waterfield was healthy to play. I'm glad you pointed that out because it was one of only two starts that year for Norm Van Brocklin, only one of two starts. And that day, that day, Upton, not only did they have 554 yards passing, they had 735 yards in offense, which is still an NFL record. How do well, you and tell the- your quarterback who just did that? How do you tell your quarterback Hey, by the way, nice job. You're going back to the bench. <laughs> well, di- different different than today where everybody's squawking on the Internet about lack of playing time and, and all the social media. Then uh, when your coach told you to sit your ass down, you sat it down. And it's interesting because Van Brocklin really uh, was the type of person all the way through as a coach that tells you exactly what he thought. And But it was a very kind of tense situation in that this kind of, uh, you know, person that would give you his thoughts and be very open about them and really was, in my opinion, uh, better than, even coming up, better than Bob Waterfield. But Waterfield was a big star out there, a very, very nice guy. Uh, But Van Brocklin, still to this day, I will tell you, that all the great quarterbacks that I've seen with great arms, starting with Sammy Ball, right through to Dan Marino, John Elway, and many of the magicians you have today, uh, that Van Brocklin probably still to me was one of the best long-distance throwers. I mean, he could lay that ball out there either on a line or over the top at 50, 60 yards. Now, think about that. 1951, no training program. You know, no quarterback coaches, no send-in plays, nothing. And yet this guy tore the Yanks apart, even though they weren't a very good team. You know, Upton, um, we have to remember, Upton, that um, the 51 Rams, they they were no fluke. Upton, they ended up winning the championship. They beat Paul Brown, Otto Graham, um, and the great Browns teams, and uh, Upton, I believe that with the score 17-all in the fourth quarter, 
Van Brockland threw a 73-yard touchdown pass to Tom Fears uh, to give the Rams the championship. So that was a heck of a team. It, it was, and I saw all the games. I saw the 50 championship game uh, when, when the Browns actually came back and, and won the game at the end. I mean, dramatic. People today, if those games were on television today, Clark, uh, people would say, oh, my God, what, what, a, what a fantastic finish. And, and both games were, and in the case of Van Brocklin, what, what you were talking about, he did bring them back. And I can tell you this, I saw Sammy Ball in practice, saw John Unitas in practice, so everyone that we're talking about in practice, including Van Brocklin, and if you saw Van Brocklin throw in practice, you would say, oh, my God, what an arm. I mean, he had it all, including at the very end of his career when I saw him with the Philadelphia Eagles. And he could still, at the age of 33 or 34, he could still really wing the ball. The other thing to remember, no shotgun then, T formation, you drop back and you threw, and you had to get rid of the ball in like 3.2 seconds. Now, no matter how bad the opponent might be, uh, to be able to do that, set it up, and throw for that amount of yardage, still to me is one of the great modern feats of the NFL. I'm with you on that, and I really can't understand. Uh, you just said a moment ago, you think that record's going to hold up. You know, going forward, there's been a lot of 500-yard games, often plenty of them, but nobody's topped Van Brocklin. I don't really understand it because in 51, as you well know, it was a running league, and you could rough up the receivers, and now you can't, and everybody's throwing 40, 50 times a game. It's unbelievable that that record still holds. Well, it is, but, but also uh, to add to that, remember, uh, most teams played man for man. They didn't play a lot of zone. So therefore, you know, when, when you had a team, even, even if the defensive backs were not that good, they ran with you all the way. There, there was no penalty for hitting somebody after five yards. None of that. It was a running game, which makes it even more extraordinary, as you point out. Uh, because the average quarterback then maybe, maybe threw 20 times a game. I remember John Unitas when I was with the Colts, if he threw 25 times a game with all the records that he set, actually that was a lot of passes. So all the things that you see today where, to me, the records have been obliterated because there's so many more games, uh, the game is wide open, you, you, you're penalizing the defense, all of those things, they add to what I think are a lot of phony statistics. Great. The quarterbacks are better. All of the things you can say. But if you were to go back then and say that this person was going to throw way over 500 yards against a team, whether they were good or not, is just an amazing feat. And I, I really hope that uh, through the publicity of what we're talking about today, that people will understand how great Van Brocklin really was. We're speaking with former Hall of Fame, well, former, uh, he is a Hall of Fame guest, former NFL executive up in Bell, 
on the eye test for two. And Upton, um, you talk about extraordinary things. One of the most extraordinary to me about this record is that it happened in a year when nobody threw for more than 2,400 yards. The only two guys who did that, who threw for actually over 2,000 yards, were Bobby Lane and Otto Graham. Only two. So my question is, in that kind of atmosphere, as you mentioned, as a running league, um, if you threw more than 20 times, it was uh, an anomaly. How would Van Brocklin's record translate in today's game? 700 yards? 800 yards? 900 yards? What would it mean today? Well, today, probably near 1,000 yards. Now, that, that <laughs> might sound like an exaggeration. But think about it. I mean, I, I have three t- uh, TV sets. I have the red zone. I watch everything. I, I understand perfectly the modern game, all the things that are going on today. But but think about it. If if a Dan Marino, who might have been the best dropback quarterback of all time, and and anybody else, Tom Brady, you name it, uh, would they have been able to do that against that type of defense? I don't care. Again, if you don't think that the Yanks were any good. And they weren't particularly very good. <clears throat> but on the other hand, when you think about not being able to throw the ball a lot, you think about it was a running game. In fact, if, if uh, one of the things that the pro coaches, even to some degree, copied Woody Hayes, don't put the damn ball in the air when you can run it. And, of course, that was the era of the great running backs, too. So you, you move it to today, and all you can do is guess and my guess would be is it would be in near 1,000 yards today, which people would say, I mean, the person who did that would already be enshrined in the Hall of Fame in the minds of all the overrated broadcasters. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, it's funny, Ira, he mentioned, he said the Yanks weren't very good. He's right about that. They were 1-9-2 that year, and they ranked last in pass defense. But that's beside the point. One thing that is to the point and it's staggering to me is he completed 27 passes that day now you just do the math 27 into 554 it's 20.5 yards per completion per completion longest one was a 67 yard touchdown and i remember uh, reading new york times one time there was a uh, halfback quarterback defensive back he did everything george Tolliver. he was quite the new york times yep. talking about talking to uh uh, Van Brocklin after the game and <laughs> he said he said to him you did it all but why didn't you do something really extraordinary like run and catch it yourself <laughs> he said that's the only thing he didn't do and and Upton that is the only thing he didn't do he did it all well that 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 was correct and you know it's funny I knew George and and by the way that that's New York Yanks team which by the way uh just quickly they were the Boston Yanks, the New York Yanks, the New York Bulldogs, the Dallas Texans, and finally the Baltimore Colts. And that's how George Taliaferro and Buddy Young, who was one of the great college backs of all time, uh, ended up in Baltimore. And, and that team, when they finally went to Dallas and then they, they went under, my father moved the team. Uh, they renamed it. And they played and practiced out of Hershey, Pennsylvania. That whole story is a separate story that's 
just unbelievable, including my father having, and the team was originally owned by the Songbird of America, Kate, uh, well, it was Ted Collins and Kate Smith, Miss God Bless America. And my father used to call Ted Collins and then Kate Smith and say, you've got to make the goddamn payroll. You know, they, they weren't paying their players. Oh, that, that story is for another day. But again, going back to that team and understanding, uh, you know, I, the, to me, out of the 32 NFL teams today, in spite of all of the great athletes, better than before, in spite of everything that you talk about, there's about 15 teams in my mind to a degree that, that might, if they were playing then, look like the New York Yanks. You know, that, that's what you have to understand when people say, oh, right, everything is so much better today. But relative to what uh, Van Brocklin did against that New York Yank team, you might say until this year, let's say they've won their first couple of games, that could be Jacksonville. That could be the Jaguars. Think about that. Right. So in comparison, so again, looking at that record that day in a running game, where defensive backs played man, no matter how lousy they were, you still had to get open. And and remember who he was throwing to. Elroy Crazy Lakes Hirsch and Tom Fierce. Both ended up being in the Hall right. of Fame too. So it 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 was an incredible feat. And it should be remembered more and celebrated by the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Upton, I, I, I love your historical perspective. Your memory is unbelievable. Uh, even at even at your age of 50, it's unbelievable, Upton. Uh, so I got to give you credit. Um, Upton, I got to ask you something. Um, sure. <laughs> I, I want to ask you about um, sort of the arc of, of the popularity of professional football um, when your dad was the commissioner uh, in the fifties. And it seems to me that the, the tipping point was kind of in the mid sixties when the NFL replaced baseball as number one. Um, tell me what was going on in the fifties and, and, and in the mid sixties in, in that regard. Well, first and foremost, the, the, besides Arthur Daly saying that Burt Bell did nothing else, his, his uh, discovery and pushing forward the NFL draft, his founding of it, would qualify him a first ballot Hall of Fame, which he was. Uh, but the other thing that he had, and, and being able to listen to him on the phone all the time, because when he left the office, he'd come home, and to 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, he would be on the phone. I could hear every damn conversation. He had the ability to look ahead and see that, that a couple of things. If he scheduled the week against the week and the strong against the strong in the beginning of the season, his famous quote on any given Sunday, anybody could beat anybody else. The other thing is, even though Pete, who is a great commissioner, Pete Rosell, uh, was, was given the credit uh, for the television and the explosion of the NFL was Burt Bell, who first saw television and saw that, that it could be used as a great tool for the NFL and made all of the, and they were individual uh, negotiations, NBC, CBS, uh, that what he did was he, he saw that the NFL game 
was going to be the most televised war at all. He negotiated the early contracts. And actually, people think that, that Pete and Monday Night Football in 1970-71 was the beginning. But it wasn't. Bert Bell, in the middle 50s, negotiated with the old Dumont Network to have the NFL National Game of the Week on Saturday night. In fact, he designed a football, a white football for night, and with black stripes around it. And it was the biggest hit around the country until the colleges went to him and demanded that he take it off because it was hurting their game. Even then, he saw television was the answer for pro football. He saw the draft. He saw a lot of other things. He stopped in 1946, something that could have sent the NFL down, which was the gambling scandal the night before the championship game, Giants and the Chicago Bears, and had to meet with the district attorney. And I know we're going into a lot of other things to stop. And he, and he actually suspended one player. And after the championship game, suspended both of them for life and then brought in ex-FBI agents, which you see now today, the big apparatus of the NFL and their whole protection. So I, I think that he, his genius was he saw all of this like 20 or 30 years beforehand. He also negotiated the merger because he wanted to bring the Cleveland Browns into the league and the San Francisco 49ers. So all along the way, you could see it. Now, the game, actually, by the middle of the 50s, uh, you could see the popularity of the game. And he went to the owners years before and said, listen, when he first became commissioner in 1946, he said the All-Star game, the Chicago All-Star game, was the biggest of all of the games for the NFL. They needed that more than the colleges needed them. So what he did was, he basically went to the owners and he said, what happens if a championship game ends up in a tie? He said, are we going to look ridiculous and flip a goddamn coin? He said, you know, it, it, we would look ridiculous. And not only that, it, it wouldn't be right for the players. He finally convinced them. He said, let's do this. I propose a sudden death period. An extra period if the game is tied at the end of the regulation time only for the championship game. And he said, uh, it'll not only bring excitement, but it'll then qualify that legitimate team to go to the Chicago All-Star game. He only got that passed by one vote. And he got, wow. he lived to see it. And that day, I remember seeing him after the game. And there were tears in his eyes. In fact, Raymond Barry talked about it in his book and said uh, that he was outside of the Colts locker room. In those days, unlike today, uh, my father went in because he was he was an ex-quarterback, an ex-player, owner, general manager, and finally commissioner. He knew all the players in the league. And he would go into the locker room, and every player knew him. Hey, Bert, what the hell's going on? I don't know, blah, blah, blah. He went into both the Colts and the Giants locker room after the game. And uh, Raymond Berry said, uh, he went up to him and said, uh, Mr. Bell, that must have been great. And he said he saw tears in his eyes. And I know my father told me that day, as he did John Stedman of the Baltimore News American, he said, John, old boy, I never thought I'd live to see this day. So 
six months later, he was dead. So he uh, saw all of these things. Upton, um, I see that this week the NFL finally looks like it's uh, finally shed itself of the Pro Bowl after all these years of conjecture. Um, Upton, uh, what was your father's attitude? Um, how did he create the Pro Bowl? And uh, are you kind of happy uh, we're, we're dumping it? Well, number one, they should have dumped this damn thing years ago. Now, here's the background on this. My father got together with the owners, and he said, I'm going to have a Pro Bowl. And he said, the reason is it helps publicize the league. It gets us another TV date, he said. But more importantly, it gets the players an extra paycheck. He understood, you know, being an owner that lost all sorts of money with the Eagles and then he and Art Williams, the Steelers, that basically the players were the game. He was really a player's commissioner as well as an owner's commissioner. So he said, it'll be great. He said, we'll have, we'll have voting by the fans. This is the way to get the fans, the TV networks, and, and actually pay the players. So he said, uh, I'm going to found the Pro Bowl, which he did. But he also, he didn't say it publicly, but I heard him say it to me, uh, and he said it to some of the other owners. This is for now. He understood you can't overdo things. It, this is for now. It is not forever. And I always tell people, this is ridiculous. I told people this 30 years ago. It's over. You can't, you can't do this anymore. Half the guys that are voted in don't play. When's the last time Tom Brady played in the Pro Bowl? Never. When's the last time any of the top people, Peyton Manning, because it's it's a quarterback game today. I mean, it's it, it it outlived its usefulness, and the NFL kept it on for one reason: for television. Even though it wasn't as big as any of the other games, in the middle of January now now it's February, that basically uh, it still did a good rating. It did a good rating because people were snowbound; they had nothing else to do in half the country. But it was totally unnecessary, and people could get hurt. In those days, it was totally different. You know, not as many people got hurt, but the money wasn't as big and all the other things involved. No player wants to take a chance in a league. And here's another amazing, I think, story about sports. In every other sport, the average life of a player has gone up year after year after year. When I went to my first training camp, other than my father's, in 1946, the Chicago Bears, the average life of a pro football player was three and a half years. Today, 70, 80 years later, it's down to three years, even though everything is better. Protection against concussion, you name it. It just tells you in a, in a league where there's the average life is three, three years, why the hell are you playing the Pro Bowl? I don't have an answer to that, Upton. I don't know why you're playing the Pro Bowl. But I do have one last money. question for you. We're speaking. Yeah, money. <laughs> uh, we're speaking with former <laughs> NFL executive Upton Bell on the eye test for two. And I've got one last question for you. You mentioned that um, Norm Van Brocklin finished his career with the Philadelphia Eagles. And he did, Ira, as you know, he 
retired after 1960 when the Eagles won a championship. So he went out on a winning note. But uh, in 1958, he was actually traded to the Eagles by the Rams for an offensive tackle named Buck Lansford, defensive back named Jimmy Harris, and a first-round draft pick. But that trade was okay by the commissioner of the NFL. In fact, I think you might have facilitated it. And Upton, that was your dad. You want to talk to us about it? Yes. The, the true story behind the scenes was, and a lot of people didn't know this, the Eagles could have gone under financially. Uh, he helped negotiate getting them from Chai Park, where they were just dying there. I mean, it was a baseball stadium. And and uh, negotiated he and, and other people negotiated with the University of Pennsylvania for Franklin Field, which is still one of the great stadiums in America. And basically, you know, he played there, he coached there, and he went to them and said, you know, how about, uh, even though there's a problem with the Ivy League, we can't pay you, uh, but we can do all of the uh, uh, work around it and help you. So he got 10, he and the group got 10 to permit the Eagles to go in there. But they were still having problems. People were no longer, even though Philly is still a big football town, always has been, uh, people stopped going to the Eagles after those championship years of, of 48 and 49. So he called the Rams. Now, this isn't the day when a commissioner really had power. Nobody, including Pete to a degree, ever had the power Bert Bell did. Why do you have the power? Because he was one of them. He was an owner who could tell another owner off because he was an owner. So he went to the Rams. And I'm not sure whether Pete was a GM then. I don't, I don't think he was. And he said, look, Van Bocklin, you got a quarterback problem out there. Van Bocklin's not happy. Uh, I want to bring him to the Eagles. Can you imagine Roger Goodell calling, you know, whomever it may be, calling Bob Kraft and say, you know what? I, I need Brady to move to Kansas City or somewhere. And, you know, Kraft would tell him to shove it. But in those days, it was about survival. And so he was able to get the Rams to trade Van Brocklin to Philadelphia, which brought the interest back to the Eagles. And in one of the most improbable runs by a team that basically wasn't as good as the New York Giants, who were their bitter rivals, wasn't as good as the Browns. Uh, but in that particular year, everything went right. And Van Brocklin to Tommy McDonald was like having breakfast. And, and the first two names you would hear would be Van Brocklin to McDonald. And so he drove them to the championship game. And again, against a Green Bay team that would really, besides my team, the Colts, would really dominate the 60s, pulled the upset, one of the greatest upsets of all time in beating the, or beating the Packers. So you look at it, Bert Bell engineered the trade, got him to Philly, and then two years later, he takes him and wins the championship. Now, the final part of this piece is this. And every time I'd see Van Blackland, whether whatever mood he was in, He'd say to me, Uppy, he said, if your father had lived, I would have been the coach of the Eagles. Well, I can tell you background, which, again, you would never see a commissioner do today. It's funny. 
Yeah, I would see Van Brocklin at my father's house after a Sunday game with a with an announcer by the name of Bill Campbell, uh, who did the Eagles broadcast. And they would come to the house, and I thought, Jesus, you know, Van Brocklin's coming here. They're just talking football because my father would talk at 24 hours a day. And as I learned later on, and it was a headline in the Philadelphia papers, Van Brocklin claimed that Burt Bell uh, promised him that he would be the head coach of the Eagles. And he was pretty pissed off about it. It was going everywhere. Nobody could really prove it. But I think that was the true story. The final ironic kicker for me and for Philadelphia, when Burt Bell dropped dead on Sunday at Franklin Fields, I was there, as my brother and sister were, on Wednesday, as we're, no, it was Tuesday, we're getting ready for the for his wake and the funeral on Wednesday, a call came in from the Philadelphia National Bank. And uh, my brother actually got the call. And they said, uh, sorry uh, for the Bell family, but the deal was off. And my brother said, what the hell's the deal? Well, unbeknownst to even his own family, uh, Bert Bell had negotiated a deal with the Philadelphia Eagles and the Philadelphia National Bank to buy back his old team. And uh, he would then retire at the end of the year. What a shock. If he had lived till that Wednesday and not dropped dead on Sunday, you'd be interviewing me in the Eagles box. But that's why. <laughs> We're glad to interview you wherever you are, Upton. Thanks so much for the time. Always, always appreciate the history lesson. Love you all. Thanks, Thank you, Upton. That was former league GM Upton Bell. And Ira, it's funny, he's talking about Norm Van Brocklin. He said he would tell you exactly what he thought. And he's absolutely right about that because he could be irascible. And he had, in addition to one of the greatest achievements of all time, one of the greatest quotes of all time. And that was late in his life um, when he was actually near the end of his life. He underwent uh, the removal of a brain tumor. And it was a serious deal, obviously. And he went under with the uh, removal of the tumor and was asked about it. <laughs> he said, what are you talking about? It was a brain transplant. They gave me a sports writer's brain to make sure I got one that hadn't been used. <laughs> Gotta uh, be the one of the all-time greats. That's fantastic. He also, Clark, he also said when he was coaching the Falcons, and I use this uh, because I, I use it in my presentation for Tommy Nobis. Yeah. One time, uh, one time a guy came in um, and he walked into the room and, and, and Van Brocklin pointed to Nobis's locker and he said that, that that's where the Falcons dress <laughs> <laughs> well as you mentioned yeah he was the head coach of the Falcons and the Vikings unfortunately he wasn't as successful as a head coach as he was as a quarterback he was 66 107 um Ira you have any final thoughts here uh Hurricane anything Ian I mean you want you got any final thoughts well first thing I'm gonna say Clark right off the bat is you know Upton Bell, I think he's 85, Clark. I believe he's 85. Sharp um, as attack. Sharp as attack. attack. I mean, what, what a memory. 
What a memory. Fantastic. And actually watched Norm Van Brocken had him in his house. Yeah, that was unreal. Uh, thing I want to mention is, by the way, you saw what, did you see what maybe Ian did, what um, Albert Pujols said when he hit his 700th home run and the fan who caught it was asked to return it. And he said, no, I, I, I'm going to keep it. And so they went to Albert Pujols and they said, you know, what do you think about that? He's not returning the ball. And he said, souvenirs, yeah, they're for the fans. I don't have any problem if they want to keep it. It's a class act. I mean, that's a real class. And cynics would say, this guy should cash in on it. Albert Pujol said, if he wants to keep it, fine. Let him keep it. They're for the fans. That's a class act. By that's Pujols. why people love Albert Pujol, Clark. That's yeah. why. They got 700 reasons to like him. However, that's going to do it. Uh, if you want to listen to this or any, the I Test for Two podcast, just go to our website, itestfortwo.com or fullpresscoverage.com, and you can find us there. Otherwise, you catch us right here next week at where, Ira? The I Test for Two, my friend. You got it. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week.